Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. A safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and this is episode 136 on racial trauma and somatic healing with somatic and transformational coach Rebecca Monique. Rebecca and I talk a lot about trauma and grief in this episode. We talk about her story a little bit, about moving from Africa to the UK when she was a child, and some of the survival techniques uh, that she learned through childhood. And we talk about psychological abuse, and we talk about communicating the why and the suffering we experience as humans when we aren't looking, and why healing is relational and communal. We talk about intergenerational trauma, and as I mentioned, racial trauma, uh, inner child work, the covert forms of racism that persist, the trauma we hold in our bodies, uh, and forgiving ourselves for the pain and trauma we've experienced. It's a very inspirational episode. Rebecca Monique is so eloquent uh, about this stuff because she does it for a living. Uh, really, really enjoyed connecting with her. If you aren't following Rebecca Monique on Instagram, you absolutely should. She's at R-B-C-C-M-N-Q, R-B-C-C-M-N-Q, and that is linked in the show notes for this episode, of course. Um, Yeah, I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we get to it, though, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you for the lovely birthday messages. My birthday was on Saturday, just a couple of days ago, and uh, I had a good day. I went for a 20-mile hike, and it felt good, and I'm 39 now, and uh, if you want to do anything for my birthday, uh, if you feel called to do anything for my birthday, uh, an easy thing to do is leave a rating and review for this podcast. It's easy to do, uh, helps out the show, and it's free. And I'm going to read a new review here from Anna. Anna says... Known does a beautiful job demonstrating how to be an empathy hero by showcasing so many incredible and important stories across a variety of topics that we can all either learn from or relate to. This podcast is centered around vulnerability and authenticity, making the content so incredible and impactful. It has made a great impact in my life, and I'm excited to continue hearing these powerful stories. Thank you, Anna. Uh, five stars from Anna. Thank you so much for that review. And again, feely humans out there, please leave a review. It would make my day. And we're almost at 100 v- reviews on Apple Podcasts. So let's get to 100 at the very least. Hey, let's get to 150. I think we can do it. There are a lot of you out there that haven't left a review. 
I feel like a broken record, but it is important, and it's a free way to support the show. Okay, um, what else do I want to say? I guess I just want to say uh, also thank you to all of you for sort of, I don't know, being a part of this weird physical health journey I'm experiencing. Uh, I've been sharing that I had an MRI recently this past week and an EEG and there's some maybe something going on in my brain and I I may hear this week uh, if, uh, you know, if there's something going on there. So I, I've been nervous about it, but, you know, I've been sharing openly and I hope I hope that's been okay. It seems like you guys think it's okay, but I sometimes worry that I'm sharing too much and, um, you know, you guys will get sick of me. But the reality is like I share because it, you know, it helps me, but I, I want to be a role model. I want to sort of um, model a vulnerability and and um, not for sympathy, but to show that vulnerability can be this connecting healing force. So that's what it's about. So thank you for seeing that and for being here and for listening to this podcast and for following Rebecca Monique on Instagram and um, checking her out and listening to this episode and connecting. And thank you. Uh, let's get to the episode. This is episode 136 Racial Trauma and Somatic Healing with Rebecca Monique. the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights and the darks we face as humans, trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly, without judgment, about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I am so grateful to be podcasting again with grief and trauma specialist somatic and transformational coach, and new Instagram friend, Rebecca Monique. Hello, Rebecca Monique. <laughs> I know, and how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest on Yumi Empathy. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So uh, before we get into your story, uh, I uh, we always start the show uh, with an emotional check-in. How are you doing? How, how's the week been? How are you feeling? How am I doing? Um, okay, so rather than going in with a knee-jerk re- response of, I'm doing great, um, I am going to check in with myself somatically. I am um, 
I'm feeling tingly, actually. And I think it's kind of the excitement of podcasting with you. Um, I woke up this morning a bit fuzzy headed, um, but that's clearing. Um, but all in all, I'm really grateful. Excellent. I love tingly. And I, and I, I appreciate you taking a moment to recognize the, well, first of all, the difference between just saying like, oh, I'm fine, or I'm great, right? When we hear yeah. that question, you know? Yeah. Um, and also understanding that we we humans um, all, all do that, right? From time to time, because, mm. you know, sometimes maybe we don't want to engage or, you know, maybe we're not connected to ourselves and our bodies, right? And yeah. so thank you for honoring that. How are you, how are you doing? Uh Thank you. That's very thoughtful of you for asking. Um, I'm doing. I'm doing okay. You know, I I've had some over the past month. Uh, I have major depressive disorder, and so um, I've had some lows, uh, some dips. But I'm on the upswing, and actually, recently, have had some conversations with my uh, CBT uh, cognitive behavioral therapist and my psychiatrist about exploring EMDR. Mm-hmm. And I connected with an EMDR therapist this week, we got on the we got on the phone and uh, set up an appointment for next week. So I'm, I am um, looking forward to it. I'm a little anxious about it. But I, I know that there are some things that I want to explore um, and unpack and EMDR, you know, I've just heard uh, wonderful things about humor. So I'm, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to it. Good. Good. Yeah. Have you had any experience with EMDR? Uh, not personally, but I have um, heard how successful it's been for, for many people. So it's great to see that you're exploring that route. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, for the listeners, um, EMDR is eye movement, the sensitization, the sensitive. I can't even say that word, the sensitization and reprocessing and the goal of it. And I, I think, I think its roots are in like PTSD um, mm-hmm. and exploring sort of traumas, but the way that it tends to work on um, generally speaking is, is it allows you to, if you're triggered by a certain traumatic memory and um, you know, when you are triggered, you go back to that memory and, and you can't sort of like unshake it. And the idea about, EMDR is it allows you to reintegrate those traumatic memories. So next time you maybe, you know, uh, think about it, you're not as triggered and you have the tools to kind of move through it in a maybe patient or uh, mindful way. And so for me specifically, I, um, you know, I have this uh, entrenched belief that I don't deserve love or good things or joy or attention. And it sort of informs all that I do. And so that's why I'm going to EMDR is, is trying to kind of unpack specifically where those came from and to, to develop the tools to, to, to combat them because they're mm. false beliefs, you know? Yeah. Thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable about that because um, I think with you know, moving forward with a lot of things, it's the first step is acknowledging mm. what's happening. Um, and then you're kind of able to, to then seek help or to, you know, 
well, once you've kind of identified, you know, these are the these are the things that are blocking me. Only then can you um, kind of develop the courage to 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 reach out for help. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, very figure well out said. What the, figure out what the options are that that suit you, because you know, not all options are suitable for everyone. You know, EMDR might not be mm-hmm. suitable for for many people, but it is successful for loads of other people. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so well said. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're on a path, right? And if you're looking down, you know, you're not going to know where to go. <laughs> you know, yeah. like if you're if your head is in the dirt, or or whatever, um, you're not going to know where to go next. And so yes, like, it's so important to recognize what's happening and to check in with yourself and be curious about what's going on. And then and only then you're allowed to kind of, okay, what's next, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you doing the work that you do, um, well, first of all, like, let's, let's before we get into that, I, I want to, and this is a question I like to ask my guests, is really to unpack, like, before we get into what you do currently, is to, like, kind of delve into, like, who you are as a person and where you came from. Like, so if you could sort of share um, a seminal moment or two, you know, in your lifetime, whether it's from childhood or young adulthood, you know, a moment or two or three, however many you want to share mm-hmm. that really kind of speak to who you are today that, you know, when you look back at your life and you're like, that was a moment in time that really stood out as being sort of integral to like, developing the sort of framework of of who I am now or or speaks to like you know the the path that that led to where you are now Mm. I think there are many many moments um that actually led to me even doing the work that I that I do now Mm -hmm. um so I'll give you a quick run through of my life story so far um so I was born in Sierra Leone in West Africa and um when I was three, I came over to the UK and I was adopted here. And when I was eight, my adopted mum suffered a heart attack and she passed away. So um, then I was placed in the care of a few people who who weren't particularly nice and I didn't have great experiences. Um, and then when I was 11, my adopted mum's first cousin became my legal guardian. But very early on, um, I realized or it was very clear that she had uh, psychological problems. Um, mm-hmm. And I went through a hell of a lot of psychological and physical abuse in her care. Um, and it got so bad that when I was 17, I made myself homeless. Um, mm. So I was placed in a hostel. I was clinically diagnosed with depression. Um, but I was still doing, um, I was studying for my A-levels, um, which is the, the qualification that you get before you go to university. Um, so I managed to pass my, my A-levels. I went to university. I graduated in my early 20s. I got married, had a baby. Um, I suffered postnatal depression, um, was working through a lot of the anxiety that I had, um, Three years into my marriage, I divorced. Uh, in my late twenties, discovered uh, my birth mother. Uh, also discovered that I had a birth sister who lived just outside of uh, a few miles away from where I live in London. Mm. Um, so I had many, many plot twists 
um, in my life that <laughs> definitely um, led to me having to just completely, you know, unravel who I am um, and just completely rebuild who I thought that I was. Um, mm. And, yeah, it, it was a – I knew that that my life had not been in vain, all the things I had been through. Um, I'm currently writing my autobiography. There's a, there's a lot to fill. Um, so – yeah, it's it's been a it's been a huge journey, but I wanted my story to be something that gave inspiration and hope to others because um, I could have gone down so many different paths um, at so many different points. Um, right. But you know, I think really kind of understanding that we do really have everything that we need within ourselves to thrive, um, despite the the barriers that we might face, despite the you know, the challenges, um, you know, I knew that my life was meant something more than, than, you know, all of the grief and the trauma and the tragedies I had been through. Um, and that kind of led me to, to being a coach. Hmm. So yeah, that's, that's me in a, in a nutshell. Well, in that nutshell, there's so much to unpack. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's quite a, quite a full nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I, so I'm, I'm struck by the, the mindset that you have, which is, you know, recognizing that there, you know, that within us, you know, and and I believe this too, you know, within us that we have the capacity to sort of, um, get through whatever we need to get through and to, you know, to find the resilience that, you know, as humans all, I think, innately can tap into, do like what can you tell me a little bit about like the those early experiences and you know the 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 experience because like you you kind of glossed over um and not glossing over in a bad way but like you you bullet pointed some pretty traumatic early life experiences mm-hmm. that would uh render most people pretty um you know, pretty distraught and, and, you know, uh, in a, in a place of struggle. Right. So can you, can you talk through a little bit about like your sort of those experiences, you know, uh, yeah. your reaction to like losing your adopted mother at eight, like what, like what, yeah. like what was going on in your mind? Like how, how did that feel? Like what did, mm. how did you cope with that stuff? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, even from adoption, um, you know, being separated from uh, a birth parent, I think there are psychological effects that you're not even aware of from that right. alone, you know, that separation and, and traveling from, you know, a different different country. Um, and then when I lost my, my adopted mom, I was mute for 24 hours because I just, the shock was just so intense that I just, I lost my voice. Like I didn't, I didn't even know there was nothing that could really put into words how I was feeling. I didn't even know how I was feeling. Um, And I think the thing with that is that there's the adults around you also don't know how to support you because they're also going through their grief. Um, And 
you know, in that way, I felt quite abandoned. You know, when when you lose a parent, especially so young, there are so many emotions that come up. You know, there's feelings of rejection and abandonment, and there's a huge level of shame um, and even guilt to some extent. You know, so having to deal with that and not really have anyone to turn to to talk to about that, um, I my def- my the way that I protected myself or defended myself was to just internalize all of that. Um, Mm. And I almost froze, you know, I froze in time. That eight-year-old me uh, for so long was frozen. Um, You know, and I suppose that was the way that I was able to preserve um, the the rupturing emotions that were really going on under the surface. Um, So, yeah, yeah, it was really tough. And then I suppose going through, you know, again, moving from, different homes you're you know trying to find your place in the world that's incredibly destabilizing um and you know going through psychological abuse because that's the kind of abuse that you don't see you don't even know it's happening and when you're so young you know when your brain is still developing um these are things that can have huge um neurological effects on you later on in life and you don't even realize that you know these things sometimes they don't show up immediately they show up decades later you know and and they they inform how we relate to others and the you know our attachment styles and the relationships that we have with different people not just romantic relationships but work relationships and friendships um so yeah it was and and you know of course making myself homeless that again was really destabilizing as empowering as it was because I was finally out of an environment that was so um that I felt so caged in, it was liberating, but it was also a huge shock to the system because, you know, I was out in the big bad world on my own um, and, you know, clinically diagnosed with depression. And I was, you know, trying to, it felt like trying to pull myself out of this hole that I just couldn't get out of. So, you know, there's, there's loads of um, just, I don't know, it's really difficult to put it into, into words, but, you know, then, when I became a mother myself, I had all these issues around how do I, how do I be a mum? You know, I've not gotten, I've not had a maternal or strong maternal figure in my life. Um, how do I, you know, even hold my child? How do I love my child? And I felt so much guilt for not being able to emotionally connect with my child. Mm. Um, and I didn't realize at the time, you know, all of this stuff was, you know, it was my own trauma response. It wasn't, there wasn't anything wrong with me. I wasn't, you know, an, you know, someone who wasn't able to be warm or couldn't, I, I just couldn't access my emotions. And that was yeah. my, you know, my body's way of preserving me that, you know, for so many years. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, thank you for sharing that. And that makes so much sense. I hear again and again, and it was certainly the case for me, you know, early, um, you know, some traumatic experiences or early pains and stuff. And I, you know, my, my response was to, yeah, to shut down and to guard myself as a, as the, as the survival mechanism. Right. Mm. And then that becomes, you know, that, that thing, you know, as you described, you know, it's, it's a, it's a thing that helps you get through the thing the the, the trauma or the pain or whatever, but then it, and then, but then when you're on your own uh, out in the world, uh, it becomes a hindrance. It becomes something that holds you back um, Mm. because you, during that hiding, during that protection, you're not 
accessing the motions. You know, you're not, you know, you're not feeling safe enough to go inward to be curious or explore. You're not feeling safe because like in your case, like it makes so much sense to me. You didn't feel safe, right? Like you didn't have that safety. I think safety is so important. And then Mm. you get out into the world and you continue with that and, and you have a child and, you know, I'd imagine you probably maybe didn't know like how to create that safety for your own kid, you know, mm. because you didn't have the practice. You didn't, you know, you came from a place where it was not safe. Yeah. And I think that all of these experiences are, I don't know, they, they there's a huge level of shame that come with these experiences and, the, and this shame silences us you know like when we Mm. when we think about shame uh it kind of takes these two camps like we've got the 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 innate shame which is really healthy that's the you know the very normal kind of shame that's what helps us keep keeps us humble and keeps us keeps our moral compass in check and then there's a toxic shame shame which is what we typically tend to experience so that's where we you know kind of disown ourselves and that's the that's a shame that cuts so deep, deep to the bone, right? That's what keeps us guarded because we then start to think that there is something inherently wrong with us. You know, that's where we start thinking, you know, I am at fault for these things that have happened to me or I am defective and I am not lovable. And that shame isolates us. And then we internalize it. And then when we internalize it, it becomes our identity. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's you know, it affects so many things in terms of how we, how we connect with others, how we view, um, how we view ourselves, how we view our world. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it can have such a long lasting, very damaging, somewhat problematic effect on us. Yeah. How, you know, you mentioned, uh, these early life experiences of yours, reflecting upon or impacting relationships can you can you talk about some of that Mm. so we typically how we connect with particularly our early caregivers that affects Mm -hmm. how we the the kind of attachment styles that we develop so we have there's four known attachment styles so we've got secure attachment anxious attachment avoidant attachment and um disorganized so with the ideal one that we would all love to have is secure attachment. That's where we're kind of, we're able to to connect with our emotions, understand what our needs are, um, express our needs. And, um, ex- you know, that, that's where we're kind of a little bit more, um, I suppose, balanced in the way that we um, approach relationships. And mm-hmm. then the anxious attachment, normally that's where um, we well it's kind of self-explanatory that's where we 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 yearn to be seen to be needed um and then we've kind of got I mean I'm just glossing over these because these are a lot more um detailed but um avoidant is where we typically look away or we we again avoid certain situations we kind of run away from things or we shut down um, and again, all of these things are protective mechanisms. Um, and then disorganized is kind of a mixture of the anxious and avoidant. Mm. But, you know, it affects how we um, how we interact with people. So, for instance, um, if we go into a, a relationship, 
um, and we have developed an anxious attachment style, um, we might be really scared that our partner is going to leave us. Um, mm, yeah. If we have an avoidant attachment style, um, we might shut down in arguments um, and, you know, maybe actually avoid even being in a relationship when we realize that it's going really well. Um, and then disorganized is kind of, we kind of see them typically as people who play hot and cold in relationships. You know, one minute they're very into you and then the next minute they're, you know, they're not. So you, you can kind of see, especially if you're paired with someone who, <laughs> you know, if you've got someone who's anxious and you're in a relationship with, sorry, if you're anxious and you're in a relationship with someone who's avoidant, you can immediately see how disastrous that could play, play out. Um, so yeah, all of these things, if we're not aware that you know this is how these are responses to how we learn to relate to individuals early on in our developmental years um we sometimes think that there's something wrong with us you know we we wonder why relationship we tend to attract certain people why we respond in certain ways in relationships um Yeah. yeah and how what uh attachment style were you in your relationship with your ex-husband uh do you know it's really interesting because attachment styles um aren't static so they could change over time um and they can change depending on the type of relationships that you have so you know you might have a um you might be avoidant at home and quite anxious at work um so um the type of relationship that i had um gosh I think I was probably avoidant um but I could definitely see times that I was anxious mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's difficult to to say I think the the situations um I think I, I started out in in my marriage as anxious and then I became avoidant <laughs> mm. over time yeah why do you think you became avoidant um, I think my, my defense mechanisms were kicking in place because, mm-hmm. um, from, from early on, you know, the kind of me, myself and I mentality of, yeah. okay, I'm not gonna, you know, be affected by what's going on in our relationship. I'm going to protect myself and pretend I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's what happened when I started to realize, okay, certain things are not quite how I imagined that they'd be. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's so much, uh, you know, listening to you talk and, and, uh, share so eloquently about this stuff. I, I'm reminded of just how much suffering we humans experience when we're not open-hearted, right? Mm -hmm. Like when we're not, and we, we talked about it earlier when we're not being willing to when we're not willing to look and, and sort of have the fortitude and curiosity to just look and be curious, like we, we can uh, bypass or at least uh, lessen so much suffering by doing that. Hmm. I think you made a so good point. Think- though. Yeah. You made a good point earlier about the conditions that need to be in place in order for us to even do that. Like we need to yes. feel safe. Safe. We need to feel yeah. trust for the people that we're, you know, surrounded by or the people that we confide in. So when people share their stories with me, I mean, I feel so incredibly privileged, so honored that they're sharing those parts of them themselves with me, you know, because 
they're entrusting me to hold that space for them. Mm, yeah. to, to hold their grieving heart really delicately, so tenderly. Because, you know, the vulnerability that that takes and the courage that it takes um, and, you know, being able to, to feel like you're in attunement with someone who is giving you that space of loving presence um, to be seen and to be heard and acknowledged, to be validated, to be understood is that is the catalyst for healing. And that's that's the space, the environment that needs to be cultivated in order for us to even, you know, feel that we can step into that very uncomfortable, challenging place. Because we're so used to our defense mechanisms and our protective mechanisms, that's what's familiar to us. So anything yep. other than that is going to feel kind of scary. Yep. Yeah, well said. How did you, you know, you coming from a place where it didn't always feel safe, right? You know, how did you cultivate that safety for yourself personally? Um, I think I, I developed so many practices um when I was when I was in my teens I had a diary and the my guardian she found my diary and she used everything inside that diary against me and then I oh no I know I mean that's the I mean don't they know the diary rules (laughs) I mean that's the number one rule of that diary (laughs) is you don't read their diaries (laughs) oh gosh well yeah um she didn't get the memo on that but um (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean just feeling like my space was validated um not validated um what's the word that I'm looking for honored uh uh, wasn't respected yeah it wasn't respected my space was just not um violated that's the word um my space was violated and that privacy that boundary was crossed. And then I ended up internalizing every single thing. So I am very introspective. um, And I think that, but I had to be very careful about the way that I spoke to myself in my head, the way that I, you know, the the scripts that I was running, the dialogue that I was running in my head, because I ended up spending so much time in my head. Um, Mm. And it kind of made sense for me because I didn't want to feel. So I wasn't even, I was in my head, I wasn't in my body. So I was yeah. I kind of froze all those emotions and, and that kind of kept me going. That served me for some time until I realized that actually I needed to to connect with myself to those emotions again. And I knew that it would be difficult because the moment that I did, all of those um emotions came rushing to the surface and you know, it's kind of like how we you know, uh, if we think about a splinter that we have and we don't take it out every time you know, we brush against that splinter it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt unless mm-hmm. we decide, okay, we're going to take it out. And I think that for me, um, developing somatic pra- practices helped me to just build a greater capacity to, um, to just manage those emotions when, you know, whenever they arise. Um, things like uh, meditation, you know, the whole point mm-hmm. of meditation is, is not so that we... Um, you know, it's not, it's not about meditating when something tragic happens. It's about meditating as a practice so that we can expand our capacity to actually be present when something is, is challenging and to actually hold space and be mindful, um, in that moment. Um, so, you know, small practices like that. Um, and 
I mean, I only started going to therapy in my 30s. So, I mean, I kind of felt like, why, why did I take so long to, <laughs> to even go to therapy? And the really interesting thing is that my early therapists were all men. And that was, mm. I didn't realize that that was actually because I had been wounded by women in my life. So I'd all automatically chosen men as my therapists. And it was only when I changed my therapist uh, this year that the lady that I did a consultation with, she said, in order for you to heal, what you need is to be with someone, a maternal, you know, in a maternal loving presence. And she was absolutely spot on. Um, wow. And yeah, and I, it made so much sense yeah. um, when she said it and, and it makes so much sense now. But these are the small things that, you know, this is why as, as much as I, as I am introspective and I journal daily, uh, there's only so much of that that I can do on my own. Healing is relational. Yeah. And you have to, you know, there is such a huge um, level of healing that comes from communities and, you know, being with others. Um, again, making sure that that's, that space is safe and you can trust them. Um, but there's so many light bulb moments that I've had with my therapist. Um, and yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's how I kind of started working on myself and just realizing that actually, you know, when you start to pick up on some of the triggers and the things that rupture you, you know, you kind of think to yourself, okay, there's, there's a reason why this is happening. There's, there's patterns here. Yeah. And that's when you can start to kind of unpick what they are and, and what, where they originate from. Um, yeah. And that in itself is really liberating because you're like, okay, it's not me. This is a thing that happened to me that, you know, my body tried to create a way of surviving and protecting me. Um, but now it, it served me at the time, but now I, I want to not just be surviving, but I want to thrive and I, and I want to kind of move away from those, those responses or reactions. Right. It's like... It's such a hard thing, though. Like, I, I hear you say that, and, and intellectually, you're 100% correct, right? It's mm. uh, somatically, or the body piece of it, or the emotion, the deep emotional piece of it is a much harder task. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's a task that I struggle with at times. Like, you know, like what I said before, like, I intellectually understand that, okay, these false beliefs that I have, these stories that the, the, these scripts I've been telling myself my whole life. And I, like you, Rebecca Monique, I, you know, didn't really got, start going to therapy till I was in my thirties. And I will just give you the grace of like, Hey, you were doing the, the best you could with what you had. And, you know, there's no like, <laughs> there's no like finish line to like, Oh, I went to therapy first. So, you know, Give yourself that, but <laughs> um, I think that um, I understand intellectually that these these stories I tell myself and the stories we tell ourselves are false, right, or not true, uh, based in lies or whatever. But emotionally, like bodily, like you know, the mm. somatically, you know, yeah. it's such a harder hurdle to, yeah. to overcome. Yeah, definitely. I think it's because um, there's there's so little space. There aren't many spaces in society that allow us to feel. So at work, mm. we're not encouraged to feel. You know, it's all 
intellectual. It's all about, you know, it's all cognitive. Um, right. And there are, again, with, with feeling, we only really feel when we are safe. And because there are so, there aren't many places that we, that we feel safe. You know, when do we actually, when can we feel, you know? That's why a lot of people only feel in private rather than, you know, in the presence of other people. And, you know, like yeah. I was saying, those, you know, we're relational beings, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, feeling into the body is is tricky because sometimes, I mean, we don't even know where to start. You know, we have a, a feeling that we don't like and we, we brush it away, we push it down. Um, rather than stopping, realizing, okay, there's something, something here. Where am I feeling this? What, what, you know, what is this that I'm feeling? What's the sensation? How can I describe it? Um, you know, and stay with it and actually follow that sensation, um, or track it, see how it develops, kind of explore, you know, you know, with curiosity, what is my relationship with this emotion, even if it's really challenging and difficult. Um, and then not feeling like you have to stay with that difficult emotion. You know, it's not, yes, it's good to, to explore it, but you don't always have to stay, um, or overstay with that difficult emotion. We can kind of say, okay, I'll be back. And, you know, now we're, we're kind of pals, you know, and I can recognize when it, when it pops up. But again, with emotions, when we think about it, um, we can, <clears throat> you know, when people do um, inner child work, that's connected to our emotions. That's our feeling self, right? So our inner child is that that person at many different points in our in our childhood um, that that froze. You know that um, that child that was frozen in time that didn't have um, didn't have needs met um, and we don't we don't connect with that person because again we've pushed them pushed them to the side um we don't even know what triggers them um but if we you know kind of sit with that that child and and speak lovingly to that child um we can find out a lot about what happened how they feel what makes them feel happy what makes them feel scared um you know what does what does your inner child want to say right yeah so, because our inner child is our emotional self. So, um, yeah. How do, like, I, I mean, I, I hear you say that. And I, I also think about folks or, you know, I'll just speak for myself, you know, who has, yeah, I think you commented on it before, has a connection to my sort of like past self uh, or, or past experiences. and you know, has, has an understanding. I feel like, I feel in a way that like, I, like I need to do some letting go or, or, you know, uh, allowing it to just be, or, or maybe it's, you know, finding the courage to give my past self more kindness or what have, what have you. But I feel like in some ways I feel like I'm, I'm too tied to it. Um, like I'm, you know, like it's almost like weighing me down. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I suspect that, you know, it's, it's a matter of, um, just developing the right relationship with it, you know, as opposed to, you know, like it being this maybe like 
hard thing. Um, but it's like part of my identity, right? You know, and you don't want to shed that. And like, what will I be without that part of my identity, right? Like, there's all that sort of anxiety wrapped up in that. And that, that's the thing that I'm working on. Have you have you experienced that with clients, like having those sorts of struggles? Um, as in letting go of the- yeah, letting go of like the past self, letting go of like, or or even just like, like you were talking about like giving your inner child like kindness and stuff. Like mm-hmm. it's like I, how do you how do you do that? Um. Well, there's, so there's different inner child practices. So for instance, our inner child is really connecting with our creative self. So it could be journaling. So there's, there's a a style of journaling to connect to your inner child, where for instance, you might have a question that you want to ask that inner child and you might write with your, I think it's your left hand, which is Mm. the part of the brain that connects to kind of the more childlike creative parts and then you might, so you might ask the question with your right hand, which is the more kind of, um, kind of analytical adult brain. Um, mm-hmm. And so you can kind of have a dialogue, an inner child dialogue um, <clears throat> in that way and see just what happens. It could be that you, you know, use um, arts and crafts to kind of let your inner child express what it wants to express. Um so there's loads of like different ways that we can connect to our inner child, but I think more often than not, it's whenever you feel an emotion um, that you can kind of almost have a, um, what's the word, um, a symbolic kind of conversation mm. in your head with that child. You know, what what do you want to say? What are you feeling right now? Um, what, what do you need right now? Um, mm. So those kinds of things, it's just kind of, you know, it doesn't have to be, it can be non-intrusive ways that you connect to your inner child. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I recently, uh, I'm pals with Jen Pasteloff and she, um, she did this writing workshop recently and she, she was talking about like connecting to ourselves uh, and having a more sort of just compassionate view and relationship with our own bodies and and the two things that she said that stuck out to me is 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 telling yourself like over and over again i love you i'm listening Mm. right i love you i'm listening i love that because it's and i need that because i i feel at times and you know this so well as in the work you do um i want to like i want to forget that all of the emotions and all of the, the mindfulness stuff, all the mind body, you know, like there's no connection between mind and body. Like I, I want to forget that that's the case, you know? And, and even though like, I know, you know, I hold such anxiety in my stomach, for example, like I, and I have a stomach ache and that I'm surprised, you know, like, and it's, it always like surprises me. And I, I need to remind myself that like, these things are connected, you know, our bodies are connected to our emotions mm-hmm. and I need to um, just have a compassionate, loving relationship with both those things. Um, yeah. It's just a lot. It's like, it's, it's overwhelming sometimes, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think there's, um, 
and this is why it's so important. Well, one of the things that one of the things that you said around um, "I love you, I'm listening." That's mm-hmm. so wonderful because it anchors you into the present time. Like it's mm. it, you yeah. are giving yourself space to just be, and that kind of you when someone says i'm listening and when they really are listening actively listening you know they're not rushing you and that's the same as being present you don't have to rush anything you know it's not about striving it's just about allowing and just letting things flow so if there's a bit of silence let that silence be there right yeah. and i think again like what you were saying how do you connect with your body like how do you how do you really anchor yourself into what's going on right now in ways that, you know, the, in, in, by cultivating certain practices that, you know, you don't have to make time for, but that are so simple and can be discreet and non-intrusive to your day. And I think grounding is one of the, you know, is one of the best practices, um, to where you can really harness your senses you know the sound touch um taste smell Mm. um simple things like you know what is nourishing for me within sight right now so that could be flowers within your view or plants or you know if you take a look at the the colors within in the room that you're in you know what colors are catching your eye and you know are particularly enriching for you or it could be, you know, an item of clothing that you wear or jewellery that you like the feel of, you know, how does it feel against your skin? You know, what memories, good memories, does it kind of bring back to you that are nourishing? You know, it could be um, simply pausing and shifting your attention to your feet. You know, if you right now wiggle your toes in your socks or your slippers or your shoes, you know, how does that feel? Like you're that's so grounding because you're taking, you're just being so present. Um, it could be, you know, when you're drinking a hot beverage, how does a glass feel in your hand? You know, how would you describe the shape of the mug? How would you describe uh, the temperature, you know, or even mindful eating, the taste and the texture of what you're eating, the colors that you see, um, and just, you know, not rushing. I think these things are, ways that we can every day you know just connect with ourselves and not be so much in our heads but also understanding that you know yes there is a um sometimes it's not good to be too much in your head but I think connecting um embodied self-awareness with intellectual self-awareness is Mm. creates a whole you know it's you, you kind of can't have one without the other Um, but finding some sort of balance so that you are able to, you know, bring the two into a, a a really graceful marriage, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so well said. I, when you were speaking, I thought about, you know, we have this new rescue dog and her name's Maddie and the type of training that we're doing with her is, um, it's based on. Uh, this woman, Samantha Johnson, who runs like Pack Life, uh, it's Pack Life LA, I think. And um, in some of their trainings, they, in, in specifically their leash training, they talk about how, you know, you as the human really need to be in touch with where you are emotionally. 
you know, really be mindful of what, what energy are you putting out? Right. And a lot of times like people will, um, you know, like if they see a, an excited dog, right. And they come up to them, they go, Oh, you're so cute. You're, so cute. you're, you're basically rewarding their, the dog's anxious behavior. Right. So <laughs> what, right. You know, and we all do that. And me as a dog lover, I do that too, but like, I'm learning that like, I need to really, especially her, you know, she's young, she's new to the area. She's, she has some anxiety that I can, that I'm picking up on. Right. I need to be grounded myself and and show her that like we're calm, we're good. I'm being mindful of that. And that's been actually a really helpful tool uh, these past couple of weeks. It hasn't Mm -hmm. even been two weeks, but um, in, in my, in my own sort of body awareness, it's been pretty neat. Yeah. I think um, something that you kind of lightly touched on there as well was boundaries. Like how do you Mm. create boundaries um, for yourself and maintain them and if needs be reinforce those boundaries um, so it could be you know if you're tired uh, and you don't want to go out to just simply say that you don't want to go out you know or um, you know it's it could be boundaries on social media or you know all of these things to help manage our mental and emotional well-being um, and teaching people how to treat us um, yeah. and I think sometimes if we have, allow people to mistreat us, um, setting those boundaries, especially if you've experienced trauma, you know, setting boundaries is really, really difficult. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, boundaries is, is a, is a, is a key one in terms of self-compassion and self-love, um, and being able to maintain that because, you know, you're saying, you know, my needs matter, I matter. Right. So Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're hard. Uh, I struggle with boundaries myself. And I think as a culture at times, we feel we have this sense that boundaries are selfish, right? That mm. they're, um, they're cruel or something. Mm. But in fact, the opposite is true. Yeah. I think anyone yeah. who thinks boundaries are selfish is probably they're probably people that benefit from you not having any boundaries. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. What what kind of boundaries have you created in your life that have helped uh, and served you? Um, for my well being, things like the time that I go to bed. So how much access people have to me, and when they have mm. access to me. Um, there's things like um, when I'm exhausted to just stop. That's a boundary in itself. Like, you know, instead of saying, okay, I'll just finish this off, um, just, you know, understand what my body needs. So that is a boundary in itself, you know, recognizing that your body is calling for something and yeah. meeting that need. Um there's boundaries in terms of conversations that I will have and won't have with people. There's um, things that I will do and won't do. So, you know, do I really want to do something? Um, do I feel obliged? So I, I check in on myself. Is this, am I doing this out of obligation or, you know, because I really want to do it? Um, they're, yeah, small, small little check-ins every now and again are kind of just ways that I can 
just make sure that I'm, I'm, I feel aligned with myself and yeah. what's authentic to me and what I really want. Because yes, there are situations that you will compromise, but you know, if you continually compromise, you find that you get lost in all mm. of that. Absolutely. Yeah. How have boundaries been as a parent? Um, really good. Like, I mean, what do you mean? I guess I just mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not a parent myself, um, mm. but most of my friends have kids and, you know, kids can uh, push boundaries, right? They can really <laughs> sort of challenge them, right? They can, you know, they can yeah. really sort of, um, uh, you can lose yourself, you know, your, I own, yeah. your own identity in your kids, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my son is at the age where he's very, uh, he's good at negotiating. So sometimes he can, <laughs> <laughs> he can push some boundaries, but I think I, I like to give him choice um, and a lot of autonomy within um, certain restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where we are able to kind of compromise with things. So there doesn't feel like there's constant resistance um, with some boundaries that I set for him. And I think for me as well, I'm really, um, I just, I'm, I just have very open conversations with him. Like when I'm tired, I say, you know, mommy needs a bit of um, sleep right now, um, you know, or, or a nap. And he, and he respects that. I think when you communicate certain things, you communicate the why. Um, children are quite understanding. Um, but I think it's when you're not open in your communication and they don't know why things are happening. Um, that's where they can kind of push. Um, yeah. 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 That's so, I mean, communicate the why. I mean, Mm. that needs to be said again and again and again, communicate the why. Mm. I love that. You know, I, cause I, I think about, you know, let's see an example. I think I mentioned it before on this podcast, but when, when a parent says, you know, just because, right? Like mm-hmm. when a kid asks why and they say, just because I'm the parent, right? Yeah. I don't think that's good, <laughs> right? You're, like, you're, you're Right? They're not communicating the why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's important to um, talk about impact with children as mm. well um, so yeah. they can start to understand cause and effect. Um, and again, that, that kind of ties into the, the why with things. Um, because when you say because I'm the parent or, be, you know, just because, you, you know, you're basically saying I'm an authority figure and there isn't actually a reason, but because I'm older than exactly. you, because I'm your parent, it still doesn't allow them to, um, it doesn't give them the tools to be able to navigate the world and communicate with others when, you know, as they grow. Um, and it, it, I think it just sends the wrong message in terms of authority and power. Yeah. Um, rather than accountability and responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. So the work you do a lot of work in trauma, right. And looking mm-hmm. at trauma and, and helping people through trauma, you know, a, 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 a term that I've heard again and again is this uh, it's called intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that is and how that you know, how that surfaces today in, in, in real life? Uh, yeah, so it's the intergenerational trauma is basically trauma that has been passed down 
um, not genetically because that's um, epigenetic trauma. There's many, many traumas, uh, but it's it's environmental um, traumas that have been passed down through uh, the environments or the situations that you have been placed in. So, mm. for instance, if, I don't know, your mother has had um, a traumatic event that has caused a huge amount of anxiety, that might then, um, certain behaviours that, that you um, are exposed to might then... Um, lead to you, I don't know, having some sort of addiction maybe in your life um, because that's the way that you've learned to cope with certain things. Um, it, it very much depends on it, – it's not clear-cut what you will inherit, if that makes sense, or, or yeah. um, how that will be yeah. passed down. Um, but it's basically a, a type of trauma that you have had to kind of deal with, um, a secondary trauma that um, – that you then develop ad- ad- adaptations to survive. Um, yeah. Yeah. Have you uh, done research on like the ACE studies? I have. I've done my ACE. Um, my ACE score was seven. So that was pretty uh-huh. high. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that happen um, in childhood that, you know, whether it's um, again, neglect, um, actual physical abuse um yeah many many things can affect um those kind of um what your score would be yeah i i think i took it at some point um i think i was a five or a six i can't wow. remember but <laughs> it's yeah it's interesting I, I i'd imagine you've also read the body keeps the score I have, yeah. Oh, I love that book. <laughs> I love that book so much. It's like, uh, it was very eye-opening to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, so when it comes to intergenerational trauma, what are, like, what are some of the common things that you see in your clients, for instance? Um, so addiction. Um, anxiety, there are certain behavioral, uh, patterns. So, um, it might be, oh, actually like emotional stuff. Again, shame comes up a lot of fear and rage, um, from mm. things that they have had to kind of endure, um, behavioral ones like perfectionism, um, a lot of ple- people pleasing, um, oh, particu- yeah. particularly for people who have had, um, parents who have, um, been alcoholics or just abusive parents um yeah um they've kind of lived in i find that they're in constantly in this kind of state of hypervigilance or the complete opposite sometimes um quite numbed yeah um again they might also have um develop their own trauma that could lead to psycho um sorry physiological effects like high blood pressure uh, migraines they might also have digestive problems um and again psychologically psychological problems like depression anxiety bipolar disorder personality disorder or even in extreme cases you've got like sociopathy um so yeah there's 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 loads of impacts it lo- loads of uh, effects. Um, sorry, loads of ways that 
that that intergenerational trauma can can impact um an individual yeah. and all of, all of these ways of being are so familiar they're just normal to them you know and if we if mm. they don't address them um they're constantly finding themselves ruptured or activated um yeah is there an element in your you know when you're working with your clients of getting your clients to sort of unpack or, or no, that sounds the right word. My dog is sneezing in the background. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I guess what I'm trying to get at is how does empathy play a role in that? Because I, I think that when we think about intergenerational trauma, I have to imagine like part of it is, you know, when I'm, when I'm, when I hear, you know, I'm, my name is known and I, I, you know, have, you know, my, my parents have had their own traumas and their parents. Right. And, and part of my healing, right. You know, requires a look back, right. And, and maybe understanding that, you know, the way they were was informed by their own sort of maybe traumatic experiences and, and so on and so forth. And there's a certain, um, uh, at least sympathy there and compassion. Like how does that play a role in your sort of teaching and, uh, understanding of it um i think it's important to validate a person's experience mm. um because when we go through this there is sometimes like you know sometimes people deny the experience that, that has happened to them or yeah. uh they try to protect their parents or you know there's also a, a huge level of forgiveness so forgiving themselves and having them realize that you know the things that happened to them they shouldn't have had to go through you know, it wasn't their responsibility to parent their parent. It wasn't their responsibility to be their emotional support for their parent or to have gone through whatever abuse that they may have, <clears throat> excuse me, gone through. Um, and again, like you said, to somehow find something within themselves to acknowledge that their parents were doing the best that they knew how to to be. You know, they, they were living how you know, the best that they knew how to. Um, so I think that also in, encouraging if, if it's possible, a conversation um, with their parents, you know, to actually openly discuss the things that happened, because I think this is, again, silence is this thing that just kind of eats away at us where, you know, if things aren't, particularly our parents, if they don't acknowledge what they've done, that's an, that's a, you know, a huge level of grief that we go through, you know, that, that loss of, someone not not even acknowledging the pain um that they've caused us um but yeah a lot of the the self-compassion and understanding you know how are we talking to ourselves what voice are we using um is it really our voice that we're using when we're talking to ourselves or is it the voice of our parent um Mm. you know um yeah yeah I think it it depends on the situation because it's kind of you know there's a saying one stimuli um, many responses. Everyone is very different depending on things like um, the, the 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 level of trauma that they went through. Um, you know how quickly that trauma was addressed. Um, whether or not they had access to support after uh, the trauma happened. Um, there are so many, um, yeah, so many different ways. Yeah, thank you for that. And you know, to add, like, I mean, it's, it's, there's so many probably complexities to this, but thinking about, you know, 
the importance of recognizing that, you know, let's say a certain family, you know, like you could have like different emotional responses or different emotional um, burdens sort of put upon you, you know, and you could be in the same family, right? Like a brother has a yeah. different experience than a sister, for instance, or, you know, vice versa. I think that's those nuances are important to to be mindful of as well. Yeah, trauma sits on a, a continuum from um, from wounding. So that's the hurts that we experience or the emotionally pa- painful experiences that we go through to the incredibly tragic physical attacks that we might experience. Um, so, yeah, trauma is so many things. You know, it's the – you might have a near-death experience or a vehicle crash or the death of a loved one, but it's also things like um, – it could be sexual abuse or neglect or abandonment or separation. Um, mm. There are so many things that fit into that spectrum of what trauma is. And no one can say to you, can dictate to you what trauma is. Um, it's only the person that has experienced it that can say, this was traumatic for me. Yes, yes, absolutely. What about racial trauma? Can you mm. talk to me a little bit about that? Uh, sure. So when we think about uh, racial trauma, that's a, a race-based, um, a form of race-based stress um, that's typically experienced by, well, not typically, it is experienced by uh, black, indigenous people of colour. Um, and it's their reaction to um, dangerous events, whether or not they're real or perceived, um, of racial discrimination. So it could include things like threats of harm or humiliation or things that are really shaming. So shameful events, it could be secondhand um, witnessing of racial trauma. Um, it's, you know, when we think about the work that I do when, when it comes to racial trauma, um, you know, it's, and, and the somatic work, there's exploring the lived embodied experiences of black bodies. Um, again, we touch on intergenerational trauma, ancestral trauma, epigenetic trauma, uh, systemic discrimination and oppression. Um, there's things like white body supremacy and white privilege and understanding things like colonialism and its impact on white and black bodies. Um, and because it's this, this type of trauma is so historical and cultural and syst- systemic, it's um it's ongoing so you know when you kind of we touched on safety it's really difficult to heal when you are not safe right so it's like how do we heal um when society is and continues to be you know continues to re-expose or re-traumatize right um so yeah, and it's it's also one of those traumas that's so unique because it's it's both on an individual and collective level. So mm. when you do like somatic work um, with racial trauma and healing that, um, it requires a lot of you know validating experiences, um, unlearning a lot of the kind of colonial systems of oppression, um, and fostering ways that we can settle our bodies and um, healing practices, again, in safe, very trusting spaces. Um, yeah. I mean, this, this one is, is, you know, obviously present of mine for, for 
I'm sure for you and and for me, you know, considering what's going on in the world right now, all the the protests and you know certainly uh, the murdering of George Floyd, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, you know, all these um, tragic, uh, awful things happening in the world, and it's fucking awful, is what I'll say. And it's it's it makes me um, endlessly sad to know that um, you know you describe you know you talk we talk about safety right and needing that safety to to heal mm-hmm. and the world that we live in, the world that I am complicit in as a white person um, is not safe for uh, black people, is not safe for uh, black indigenous people of color. And that is fucked up, Mm. plain and simple. And it needs to be remedied. And um, yeah, I mean, I... (laughs) Um, of course, you know that, um, uh, Rebecca Monique, but I, I just, um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, um, somatic, the somatic work isn't just for, uh, black bodies. It's considered, uh, imperative as well for white bodies to heal, um, their ancestral trauma, um, because Mm. it's all connected. What, what is the, uh. How is the sort of cultural, social situation right now in the UK regarding kind of what's going on in the world right now? I think um, it's not, I mean, the racism experienced in Britain is more covert than it is in, um, than in America. I mean, there's there's so many things around. Um, I mean, even looking at the educational system, the education system. There's you know huge amounts of history that have been the erasure of you know huge amounts of history from the curriculum that pretty much deny or don't take accountability for slavery in Britain. Um, I think now is, you know, people are starting to, to realize, um, how, again, this is part of, um, again, not taking accountability, but, um, because it's so covert here in, in the UK, I think there's, there's an even greater call for it to kind of be stamped out and for people to kind of, to realize and to expose just how bad it, how bad it is. Yeah. Um, Cause that's almost kind of the worst, you know, the, the one that, I mean, there's not one worse race type of racism. Racism is, is abhorrent. Um, but you know, again, that kind of denial of denying, you know, black people's experiences, um, that happens all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't I didn't articulate it how I wanted to because I think you know there's I'm also very speechless when it comes to this it's very um I think I have to kind of feel through it somatically that is yeah. literally my response oh. my my own protective mechanism is just like I shut down as well and um and I'm working through that as well yeah yeah absolutely um you know I I I kind of like to think of it 
uh, and this is the way I look at the world in general, but it's certainly the way I look at, you know, the practices of empathy and the practices of emotional intelligence and curiosity building, you know, it's really like when I like, and I'll just speak for myself, when I'm looking at this, uh, these, this racial trauma, like these, these, uh, covert and overt sort of forms of racism. And, 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 and now like for the first time in my life, like truly like educating myself on the matter, like I have to be just like I have to be in my emotional life, just like I have to be when it comes to, um, my curiosity and sort of looking at the world, I have to be open and, um, I have to be willing to be uncomfortable right? And willing to uh, let go of my, let go of ego, right? Um, And, and only doing so, like, I can have an open heart to, to, to learn, and to um, educate myself and to find uh, the compassion that I need to, right, enact change and, 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 and do it you know, as, as daily as I can. Right. Otherwise I'm, you know, I just have blinders on, right. Like, and, and, and living that way is there's no, you can't go anywhere there. It's, you have to, you have to like open up in order to, to change and to be changed and to enact change. And with that comes a lot of discomfort, right. Absolutely. You know, and that it's the same for this. It's the same for emotional curiosities. It's, it needs to be a part of the equation. Yeah. Um, Resma Menikum, um, who is a, uh, he's a therapist and a somatic experiencing practitioner. He wrote a book called uh, My, My Grandmother's Hands, and he talked about what you just mentioned. So clean mm. pain and dirty pain. So clean, dirty pain is the kind of pain that we kind of skirt around. Um, mm. And then the clean pain is the one that's really difficult, but we go through it. And that's the only way to overcome it by going through it. There's no other way. And, you know, sitting with that discomfort. Um, and that's the way that we, we are kind of able to heal um, or start to heal and mend um, racial trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. Um. So I always put a call out on Instagram for questions and there was one question. I think it was from Lucy. Uh, I didn't go back and look, so I apologize if it wasn't, but the question was about, you know, essentially is, is the experience of grief in losing a pet equatable to the experience of grief in losing, you know, a friend or a human person? Mm. Um, um, yeah. I would say no. I mean, you know, we are connected to many people are connected to their pets in the same way that they feel, you know, close connection to humans. Um, only we can kind of, again, like I was saying with, with trauma and with grief, only we can uh, define um, the deepness or the level of grief that we're going through. It's not you know, different because it's one's human and one's an animal. Um, I think any type of grief needs to be deeply felt. And um, yeah, that, you know, some people 
their pets are, you know, they, they don't have other humans in their lives. So their pets are, you know, they're, they're incredibly close to their pets. And when a pet dies, you, you know, basically, no, there is no, <laughs> there is no difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, understood. And I, you know, I think the most important thing you said, Rebecca Monique, is is that, you know, no one can tell you how to feel your grief. You know, yeah. like whatever, however big or small it is, it's yours and it's valid um, because you're experiencing a loss and a loss mm. is a loss and that's a hard thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, why don't you... Um, well, we'll actually do that in a second. Let's first uh, talk about empathy heroes. <laughs> we always kind of start wrapping up the show uh, talking about folks in our lives who are, you know, just great, great empaths. Um, you know, they could be people we know personally. They could be even characters from a novel or a story or a movie we love. Um, I will go first to give you a moment to think about your empathy hero. <laughs> <laughs> My empathy hero this week is the aforementioned um, new rescue puppers named Maddie Mardigan. Uh, <laughs> her name's Maddie, um, named after one of my favorite characters from the movie Willow, Mad Mardigan, um, played by Val Kilmer. Uh, I, I know it's very nerdy, um, <laughs> but uh, she's very sweet. Um, I think... Like I said before, animals have a way, animals are empathy machines, truly, and they have a way to, if you're open to it, uh, connect you and ground you and and allow you the space to be mindful of your own feelings and emotions and and anxieties and and stuff in the moment. And she's just so sweet and snuggly, and um, you know, it's also a in some ways a little bittersweet because I, you know, we also have a 13 and a half year old black Labrador who, uh, you know, is the love of my life to be clear. And, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we've been with him forever, you know, since he was a puppy and, you know, it, it, it you know, in rescuing Maddie, it's a, you know, it is a, it is a big, it is a big difference. And it's also, it it's, it indicates this, you know, transition and, and Scooby's, you know, as much as I like to believe that Scooby will live another 13 and a half year, 13 and a half years, he will not, you know, cause that's not possible. And it, it, so it marks like sort of the slowing down of his life and the, the, the newness of this, of, of Maddie's life. And, and that, that, that's bittersweet in a way, but it's also beautiful and, and the circle of life. Right. So, um yeah, Maddie is my empathy hero. Yeah. That's lovely. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Uh I'm gonna pick my son as my empathy hero. Um, because and of course I'm I'm biased because I'm his mom. Um, but he is every single day he expresses and demonstrates compassion and consideration and interest and curiosity um for people and you know their feelings and their perceptions and where they're coming from and their decisions and i think that that level of emotional intelligence is really going to put him in good stead 
for building stronger, long-lasting relationships when um, when he's older. Um, so yeah, he's my he's my empathy hero. Mm, I love that, and you know, you've had an influence there, you know, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> you know, and I've had some influence, and I think that you had some influence. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And what's your son's name? He is called Dre Aiden. So I also blessed him with a hyphenated name. I love it. Dre Aiden. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, well, Rebecca and Monique, where, where can people uh, learn more about the work you're doing, connect with you online, uh, all that stuff? Um, I'm on Instagram. So I'm active on there. So my um, Instagram handle is rbccmnq. So that's my that's my name, Rebecca Monique, but without the vowels. Um, and then you can also visit my website, which is also rbccmnq.com. Um, and actually an interesting story about my brand and my logo um, being my name without the vowels. So it serves two purposes. One is to remind me of all the times that I have silenced myself or not given voice to the parts of me or my journey. Um, and it also represents being able to find the answers in the stillness. Um, so there's a, a composer that wrote that the beauty in music can be found in between the silences and the notes. So that's mm. also what that represents for me. So, you know, yeah. using your, the wherewithal, your internal resources to find the answers. That's so lovely. I love that. And I, I love the, I was checking out your website yesterday. I love the logo. The logo is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's bright and colorful. It makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, listeners, all of those links to Rebecca Monique's uh, Instagram and uh, website will be linked in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Rebecca Monique, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you so much for having me, Nan. You're very welcome. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy.